As a thankful recipient of many, many skincare products over the years, I've learned to discern what is naturally actually activating my skin to rebalance and recalibrate on its own. That's what your skin is meant to be doing, and it keeps getting disrupted by all these choices that we make. So, when the founder and creator of Herbal Face Food reached out to me, I was all ears. I didn't know why at first. It turns out that Herbal Face Food is the most potent antioxidant skincare line on the market today, period. The raw plant ingredients in each of their products are never processed, never manipulated with synthetics or emulsifiers. These anti-aging botanicals are combined with the most precious plant concentrates, and they have changed my skin. Here's how. I'm going to talk about two of the products, the Herbal Face Food Serums and the Cream. The serums contain powerful phytoenzymes and antioxidants. These are activated and infused into your tissues. They hydrate and increase the resiliency of your skin, and they feel like they're plumping up your face. I use Serum 1 daily. I use Serum 2 when I'm tired and I need extra firming for my skin. And I use the X, which is also known as the Cure, for a small patch of rosacea that flares up every now and again, which you cannot see because of these products. When you feed your skin with herbal face food, you will feel real live ingredients at work. An activating flush, an invigorating tingle, some warmth, all of these are evidence of your skin healing at the cellular level and years of damage reversing. The cream is the most potent moisturizer I've ever tried, and I've tried them all. I live in the high desert. This cream contains 102 of the world's most powerful anti-aging botanicals and is also the world's first and only edible SPF <laughs> with a protection rating of SPF 50+. Plus. And this is accomplished 100% by plant power. And you can expect intense hydration, soothing for your tired skin. You can expect to see inflammation calmed and rebuilding of elasticity so your complexion looks and feels more smooth, and more radiant. Herbal face food is not plant-based. It's plant-powered. It has the highest rating on the ORAC anti-aging scale. ORAC means oxygen radical absorbance capacity. I never knew what that meant before. Highest, over 30 million on that scale. By contrast, vitamin C in skincare rates under 100,000. Herbal face food is using all post-consumer recycled materials and packaging. They use glass and aluminum, which is super easy to recycle as well. The products and packaging are 99% free of plastics. They contain no ingredients that involve the destruction or harm of any plant, animal, or marine life. These are 100% plants only, these products. These active concentrates are coming from the seeds, the fruits, the leaves, or the flowers of the plants only. These products have been a complete revolution for me. I know that you will love the way your skin looks and feels after using it even for just a day or two. And the best part is that Herbal Face Food has offered us, you, my community, a code to receive 20% off forever, ever. The code is capital E-L-E-N-A 20. Once again, that's my name in all caps, ELENA2020. The site is herbalfacefood.com. The code is all caps ELENA20. It's not just your first purchase, it's any purchase. You will love these products, and I am so grateful, Herbal Face Food, for the change that you have made in my life. Thank you. Welcome to the Practice You podcast. My name is Elena Brower. Together, we'll explore and enjoy content and conversations around mastering transitions. In our relations, our wellness, our careers, our families, and especially in our missions and visions. You are invited to learn and love and listen with me. Welcome to Practice You. Welcome back to the podcast. I have with me in person, in my house, dear, dear friend, Vanessa Cornell. She's the founder of the New Shoe Society. 
She's the one who is bringing the soul back to New York City and in a way that connects women, helps us feel safe, helps us learn together, try new things, have a good time. There's a collective goal to lead a passionate and authentic and even joyful life. Vanessa is the father, Vanessa is the mother, excuse me, of five children. That's five. One, two, three, four. That's five people. Her beautiful husband and she live very close by to me and her other passions include surfing, rock climbing, contemporary Japanese ceramics, which I die over in your house, and wine. And if I'm correct, you even have a vineyard. Is that true? We do in okay. California. Oh my God. Where in California? In Northern California, Sonoma County, uh, top, of, top of Spring Mountain. Jealous. Yeah, God's country. It's so beautiful. Dang, it is God's country up there. Do you go often? We do. We do. We're there once a month right. to, to deal with the business. My husband goes a little more than I do because I'm home with the kids. Got it. But uh, it's a wonderful passion project that we do together. I'd say. And, uh, yeah, and it's so much about bringing people together and enjoying and sitting around a table at a meal, which I think mm. we've gotten a little far away from. So yeah, yeah, there's, there's a lot that I want to talk to you about, because I'm sort of enamored of your capacity to bring people together. And to, in my own experience, I've worked for you a couple of times where I get to teach yoga with a group of some of the finest women I've ever been around, uh, around raising money for some of the greatest causes I've ever been exposed to. For example, Every Mother Counts. Yeah. How did your affiliation with Christy and that uh, foundation, that organization, come to pass? It was really just a personal connection I had with mm. Christy. And I feel so passionate about her cause because when you give birth five times... Five <laughs> times. And, and, and experience that, it's the kind of thing where... Before you give birth, you think, wow, this is the most incredible, extraordinary thing I've ever done. And then you do it and you realize, wow, everyone else who has a child has done this too. It's sort of both mind-blowing, like, I just climbed this mountain. Yeah. How could anyone have done the thing that I just did that was so extraordinary? And then you look around and you realize so many other people have done this too. And and unfortunately, I think it's the same with parental illness. Mm. Until you're in that club, you're not, you're not in that club. And so giving birth and pregnancy is my favorite thing to talk about. Yeah, I get that. <laughs> Whenever people are pregnant, I say, if you want all the gritty details, I'll tell you everything. If you don't want the gritty details, that's fine. But it's such a, it's such a miracle. It's so extraordinary. Yeah. And so I, I connected with her over maternal health. Right. And it, it's such a defining moment in my life. And what she does is really help to ensure that mothers around the world can have a safe experience in childbirth. Yeah. And it's fundamental. And it's not something that we should accept being less than perfect for everyone. Yeah. And the truth is so many of, of the deaths in childbirth are eminently preventable. Mm -hmm. So we connected personally. Uh, she has been a tremendous mentor for me and has really believed in me. There are a couple of people where I have just sort of expressed my insecurities as I do. I say, it's what I, I love about you. Yeah, if, if I say them enough, maybe they'll go away. And right. they, they don't really go away. But I have had a lot of mentors who have really believed in me and it's made yeah. a big difference and she's been one of them. Yeah. So I'm connected to the work and I'm connected to her too. Yeah. Christy Turlington Burns is who we're referencing. She's the founder of Every Mother Counts and a dear longtime friend, one of my first private clients actually. Actually, why now that I think about it, we need to have her on the podcast. Absolutely. Yes. She's so extraordinary. So happening. You... I love that I called you the father of five kids, first of all. <laughs> it's a Freudian <laughs> slip of my life. You're such a badass. Um, and here we are on the Upper East Side. And I, I don't know how to explain it to the listener, but if you're listening and you're wondering, well, what's so special? Um, with five children, 
it's very challenging to maintain uh, your own identity. It's hard with even one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I would love to address this because I think you've done such a good job. You you show up with two or three of your kids. Uh, you know, I've had you over here. You're on the scene. You're one of your, your eldest is now playing in a band, excelling at school. Wherever you go, you have something incredible going on with one of your children. And yet you're exactly who you are. And you serve as kind of a beacon, I think, for a lot of women in this in this space where we are, where a lot of women, I don't think, feel comfortable having a voice. A lot of women yeah. get lost in the act of parenting. They they don't really feel like themselves. And then and then I'll get to my question, I promise. But what's most fascinating is we finally get to a point where the kids are self-sufficient. We finally get to that place where they can sort of tend to themselves for the most part. You know, we're still around, but it's a different thing. It's not this every second overseeing. And then our parents get sick. Yeah. Oh, my word. Yeah. And there isn't like maybe a couple of years. Can we have a minute, please, before all this goes on? So I want to address a few things. One is how on earth do you maintain your own identity, your own mission with five children? Well, I I didn't always. And I had them quickly. So I was pregnant, breastfeeding or both for eight years straight without a day. Mm. And I think the reason I could do that is because I was raised stoic. You don't complain, you put your head down and you just do it. So I was a, you know, I was a compliant, people pleasing, perfect child. You ask my mother, you know, was she perfect? She'll say yes. And uh, you ask my dear friend Tova Klein, who runs the Barnard Chot. A toddler center and she says it's the perfect ones we worry about oh. yeah and so I was that person who just did it yeah and at the end of the eight years I weaned Lily my youngest she was a year I exploded I mean ugly horrible explosion where I pretty much almost lost my life my husband my children and I literally had not let out steam my entire life. And so when you don't let out steam, when you do explode, it's spectacular. And my um, saint of a husband who was wise and loving enough that the depth of his love sort of said, I know who you are inside and I'm gonna stick with you. And I, and I exploded because I, I just couldn't take it anymore. It was just give, 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 Mm. give, give. And in the picking up of the pieces, I started to find my voice. And it was hard because I didn't even think I had one. I didn't know where to look. Mm. I couldn't even hear it. I wasn't even listening for it. But something inside me told me I I, I had to do this. And so in, in the finding of my voice, I realized the fact that even though on paper I had everything, perfect life. Yeah. I was desperately lonely, desperately lonely because I was emotionally closed and I was making every decision in my life for an external approval. And so all of my accomplishments, you know, uh, St. Paul's, Harvard, Goldman Sachs, Harvard. five kids, yeah, all felt empty in that moment. All of those things that I had done felt empty. And so in picking up the pieces, I started to find my own voice and find my passion. And I had such a tremendous welling up of energy in that process that I had to do something with it. And, and you were asking about identity with the yeah, children. Yeah. And I think it's in finding that voice and, and honoring that voice that the identity can be found in sort of listening to that truth inside and stopping myself from sticking in, in that box and putting, you know, six more boxes over it and putting a lock on it and throwing it down to the depths of the ocean. Right. And so when I live now, and it's, as you know, an ongoing, an ongoing process, it's not like I, I figured it out and now I'm good for the rest of my life. You know, in that ongoing process, so much of the way that I am with my children is about honoring that voice and just being my truth and being with them in that way. Yeah. And 
there is a fear, I think, with women that if we think of ourselves, if we honor our needs, that, you know, it's a zero-sum game and the pie gets divided up and there's less left over for husband or children or work. And it's just not true. It's just not true. There's so much more. And so my capacity has grown dramatically. Even though I was pretty capable, I could do a lot. And now I feel like I juggle, but it's not frantic. Yeah. Because I know what I care about and I cut out what I don't. Mm -hmm. And I find I have more time now than I've ever had. Mm -hmm. And that I can enjoy my children. And, and so the finding of my identity was not an easy process and the holding of it was not easy but it and and I see in a lot of women that they don't feel they have the right to more because they already have so much and that's how I felt that's the guilt you know I have abundance and I have a husband who loves me and I have healthy children and that's really all I deserve I don't deserve to have more and it's just not true yeah I think a lot of women listening to this would want to know sort of some sort of practical, how did you get from thinking that you didn't deserve anything or giving of yourself and feeling drained to growing your capacity to give and not feeling depleted by it? Yeah. There were people who helped me yeah. understand that. Yeah. I remember the first conversation I had about self-care where I said, my mother was a martyr mother, but I am not a martyr mother. Mm. I take care of myself. I work out and I spend time with my girlfriends. And this wonderful, loving friend responded, right, but how do you really care for yourself? I said, no, no, I do, I do, I do. And she started to help me understand that it was not about marking off time in your calendar. It was about honoring your needs. And so my first act of rebellion and it was small, but it was huge for me, was when I came downstairs in the morning, before I made breakfast for the children, before I did everything for them, I made myself a cup of tea. Mm. It was a big act of rebellion for wow. me. It was a big deal for me. And so it was, you know, mothers sometimes, I like to tell this story, when you have little kids, you'll find yourself at the end of the day not having to go to the bathroom and realizing you've had to go for like eight hours. And it's like, not even, I was so distracted by my children that I forgot to go. It's, I forgot I even had the need to go and I don't even need to go. It's like you, and it's, so it was just a listening, just a listening, a paying attention to what do I need, even if it's just a cup of tea. And I built on small moments. Yeah. It doesn't happen overnight. You don't wake up one day and say, I know exactly what I need. But the first step is to ask, what do I need in this moment? And building on those, it's practice. That's why they call it a practice. And I first I said, oh, I need to do, you know, I need to have my cup of tea. And then I thought, I think I need an expression for this energy. And I think I need to take a little time to figure out what it is. So it was small moments of what seems like nothing, but were real acts of, of sort of breaking out on my part. And it's built and built. Mm. Um, and saying it out loud to my partner. When, when I founded New Shoe Society, he said, you know, the kids are still quite young. I just started a business. Is this really the right time for this? And I responded, if I don't do this right now, there's going to be a problem. And he said, well, I guess you're doing it. You know, I just, just saying it out loud. This yeah. is what I need right now. And I'm very grateful and lucky that I have a partner who supports me in it. Yeah. Nushu is spelled N-U-S-H-U society. Can you talk to us a little bit about the impetus for that and what it is? Sure. Um, I'll t tell you first a little about the name. Yes. Nushu literally means women's language in Chinese. So that's my heritage. I'm half Chinese and mm -hmm. I speak and my kids speak. And so Nushu was a language that in ancient China, women spoke amongst themselves because they were denied formal education. And it's a written language. And so it was a practical language, but it was also a language of tribute amongst women. So when women would leave the village, 
they would write songs on fans and they would write poetry to each other in this secret women's language that men were never interested in. New shoe. Yeah. Look it up. It's really beautiful. Wow. And in my experience of the few events at which I've attended or taught, I feel such a camaraderie and such a community that you've created out of thin air. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Yeah. I mean, so I needed a place to explore and express what I was learning. And, and I wanted every time I learned something to share it with everybody I knew and loved. And so I thought about a couple of different formats and I realized that what I do well is put people in a room together. And so I conceived of Nushu as a place where women would gather, we get together four to six times a month and the members would be exposed to new ideas, new practices that they could maybe incorporate into their lives. Hmm. And one of the things that I set out to do, and I'm, I'm proud that I think I've done this, is to create a place of safety a place where vulnerability is welcomed and not just accepted but celebrated and a place that is is really sacred to these women in the sense that they can be they can explore the difficult topics and they don't have to feel lonely in them and there are a lot of different small things that go into creating that environment but i think one of the most important ones was that I started with my vulnerability. Mm. You can't create something and expect anyone to do it unless you're doing it first. So I started when I launched Nushu with a story of the fact that I had had this tremendously disrupting experience in my life and nobody knew. Mm. Not my mother, not my brother, not my friends, nobody knew. And that what you see on the outside you know, is not necessarily what's going on. And to compare your insides to somebody's outsides is never going to make you feel good because you just never know. And I think people were, people were shocked because they, it's not who they thought I was. And so that's how I started with my own vulnerability and a trust that these women were capable of it. I had a lot of skeptical people who said, are you sure these Upper East Side women are ready for this? Yeah. And I said, who are you to decide who's ready? And also, of, of all the people that could use uh, a collective, a community like this, yeah. why not? Yeah. Why not this crew yeah. who has to f kind of fake their way through life? Yeah. I, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not putting anyone down here. I'm not, there's no judgment. No, and, and I think, I think you, you have to start where you are with who yeah. you're with. Yeah. And I've been so amazed by the extraordinary courage and strength and kindness that I've encountered throughout this whole journey. And the women are amazing. I've met several of them. I, I want to just go on the record and say, yes, Vanessa and I, we live on the Upper East Side of New York. And yes, the Nushu Society was born with an idea that there's this mm, cadre of women up here that, I, I mean, and they're from also from other parts of the city, but that really don't have a place where they can gather and be themselves. They really don't. If they're gathering, it's usually with other people and they have to kind of show a certain side. Um, you have given us a place to meet and learn from your yoga teachers, from your meditation teachers, from art teachers, from all kinds of different people with different skills and talents and gifts who are inspiring these women in their own homes to start creating and practicing and learning and living again in a totally different way. There's a lot of power in that. These are mothers who are then going to inspire their children to do other great things. And then my understanding of this is that your vision is to take this bigger, farther, broader. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think everyone deserves it. For sure. Everybody needs it. I think that somebody said, well, why not men? I said, men need it too. That's just not what I have to give. Not my you know? speciality. That's all right. <laughs> I said, you know, if somebody did this for men, that would be incredible. It's just not 
that's not what I am able to do. Right. So I do it for women because right. that's who I can relate to. That's who I can lead by example. That's who I can be vulnerable with right. and, and for mothers. So I, I believe strongly that the identity issues associated with becoming a mother are really challenging. The messages that were sent as women that we're supposed to accommodate and please are challenging to overcome. Yeah. So it's for it's for all women, mm. and I hope someday to affect more women. Uh, I just haven't figured out how to do that yet. Yeah. <laughs> I just love the idea of the woman's language, the whole concept of it, the core of it, the idea of it is is something that I want to explore and keep, you know, connected to. And I think that one of the things that is a recurring theme is just underlying values and making sure that we understand the framework in which we understand the world. So underlying values like productivity and doing and being aggressive in the workplace versus being receptive, the yin qualities, uh, being, resting, those things are really undervalued. And I think those are the feminine qualities which are in men and women. And what I'm excited by and interested in is can we create a shift where those values can come up to the surface and where we can embrace those as imp as important as some of the other values that, you know, m making more money and achieving more and, and can those values be balanced out a little bit more and a lot of the, the topics we cover cover that theme. In, in a certain way, and it's an acceptance of the power of those. It's not that there's only power in one way. There are different ways to be powerful. And that's something that I'm really interested in, in spreading and talking about. I love to talk about it. I could talk about it all day. <laughs> you know, I've seen you in action. It's like one of my favorite things to, to watch you go and talk and, and lead. I can see you doing that more and more now. It's scary. <laughs> it's the scariest thing on planet Earth to say, you know what, I want to lead here. Yeah. So since you're half Chinese, I have to ask this question. Are you obsessed as I am with traditional Chinese medicine? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely, I'm not only obsessed with traditional Chinese medicine, I've become really interested in, in energy medicine. Great. And Jill Blakeway, who just wrote a book, Energy Medicine, has become a friend and mentor, and I'm just fascinated by the access to the power of our own energy that I think we've lost in a lot of ways. We're swimming so much inside our heads that mm. the wisdom of the body and the power of the body and the energetic field has been really wiped out of the conversation, and I think it's coming back, and that's something that really, really excites me and, and interests me. Yeah, if we can bring that more to mothers, I think we win. Because the kids have no filter and no veil to energy medicine. They know exactly what they're capable of doing. And, and it's interesting. I read Jill's book, and then I thought, hey, let's let's give it a go. And so I had a, a moment where my child was just so upset, mm -hmm. vibrating upset and yelling and couldn't hear me. And I was trying to be, you know, calm and reasonable and go through all the steps in my head of what I'm supposed to be and do as a good mother. And, um, and then at one point I thought, I just need to not have my head explode at this moment. You know, <laughs> Goal is head not to explode. So I thought, I know. I'll do a mindful practice with him and I'll ask him to breathe with me. And so I suggested that he breathe, breathe with me. And he looked at me like I was out of my mind and kept yelling. And then I just closed my eyes and I said, well, if he won't do it, I'm going to do it. And I started breathing. And I think he was a little shocked. You know, the shock value helped. And I did it, I don't know how long, two minutes. And when I stopped, he looked at me and he said, okay, well, when you're done with what you're doing, we can talk. And he walked out of the room. It, I, I don't know that it'll work a second time. But what I realized is that I had shifted his energy as a mother I was trying to use my brain and then my words to go into his brain, which was on fire. And that was never going to work. 
So I had to put all those words away and all that learning away and all that conscious thought away and just shift my energy and allow his to shift with mine. And it worked so beautifully and I've used it since with my kids. And so all of us can be energy healers and it's very powerful with children simply because they haven't unlearned that ability to feel it. And so when my child is having a hard time sleeping, I'll put my chest on his back and I'll have the intention of aligning his heart with mine and his brain with mine. And I will breathe slowly and bring myself to a place where my nervous system drops and then his drops and then he goes to sleep. Yeah. Secretly, I do that every night. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, a little, I, I'm a little late to the party. I just figured it out. But it's pretty exciting when you try it for the first time. And it works. Best. Incredible. I, and I'm, I do it because I only have one baby, one person. So it's easier. Um, there are so many things I want to talk to you about. The, the idea of doing this for five children, I just want to go back and answer one thing for myself. What is bedtime like? You know, I've, I've created routines with each of them. Uh-huh. And so, you know, bedtime is, you know, with one son we read mm-hmm. and then we put music on and then I lie with him. And with another daughter, um, I have a timer because that helps her. So there's a five-minute timer so that she knows she gets all of her time every single moment of our what we call our lie. And then I've used for her... Um, a sleep story from the Calm app. Oh, that's nice. Which helps her. So those are the two younger ones who really just need the presence and the routine Mm -hmm. and the feeling. And then with the older ones, they want to talk. Yeah. You know, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. It's wonderful. So when we go to bed and it's bedtime, they know that that's their time to, to talk and tell me what they're, what's on their mind. And I think that the reason I can do probably an hour to an hour and a half of bedtime every night is because I see it as my treat. It it's is. It's the time when I don't have to be productive. Yeah. I get to talk to them and I enjoy being with them. I just enjoy them. Now, I don't want anyone to think that every night I'm blissfully doing an hour and a half of bedtime and I'm not (laughs) tired and frustrated and, you know, cutting it short and doing all the things we do because we're human. And at, you know, seven to eight thirty at night, we're tired. Um, but, but yeah, (laughs) so there, there are definitely nights where I say to my son, I love you. Go to bed. You know, bye, dude. Bye. <laughs> I'm really tired. I gotta go to bed. You know, yeah. um, and there are definitely nights where my daughter says one more minute, and I say I, I, I can't. I can't. I'm too tired. I just can't I wish. do it. I just can't do it. But in general, I like the time. I like yeah. the time. And, and and some nights, the relentlessness of it is tough. It's just the relentlessness of it. It's every night, and there are some nights where I think I don't want to do it tonight, mm-hmm. you know? And um, I start dreaming of all of them going to camp at the same time <laughs> in the summer. <laughs> I know I'll miss them, but maybe not for the first week. <laughs> There's uh, We have conversations like this, a couple of my teammates and friends and I, and we talk about this sometimes, where is it so bad to say, that it's fine for the kid to be gone for a couple of nights and not miss them? Mm-hmm. Is that so bad? Because they're not actually missing us, I don't think. And there's no harm in that. There's just a real feeling of, hey, we spend all of this time together, all of these years together. How nice is it to be on your own? And I think that the fact that you don't miss them doesn't mean you're a bad mother. It means that you really needed it. Yes, and you're human, mm-hmm. and you need to be listening to the sound of your own voice for five minutes. I say that to my children all the time. Yeah, I am a human being, and I have feelings, and I have needs. And sometimes I am not a perfect mom because I'm angry, or I'm tired, or I just, you know, I'm mad or frustrated or sad or lonely, and I have all of the range of feelings that you have as well. Yeah. Thank you for that. 
if I ask the same three questions of all of my guests, and then the first one is, if you had to name something that needs healing right now, whether it's in your space, in your body, or in your sphere, what would it be? Something that needs healing. You know, I had, I had a really profound experience recently with my eldest. And he was lying to me. How old? 13. I'm told it's a great sign. I hope so. But he was lying about little things that I already knew not to be true. Mm -hmm. So he was lying not to sort of pull the wool over my eyes. I sort of realized he was lying because he literally couldn't get the ugly truth through his lips. Oh, dear. Yeah. Right. And, and it was not a huge lie. It was a little lie. And I spent so much time thinking, well, he, he wants my approval and he needs me to think he's a good boy. And so I'm going to explain to him that I love him no matter what. And when he makes mistakes and all these things, and I had the whole speech in my head, I, I really thought through it and I hold the whole speech in my head. And then I realized, oh no, this isn't going to work. Because what I realized was, he's me. I was a liar. I was not able to speak ugly truths because I was so focused on being good. Oh, yeah. And I realized that I can't be honest with him about loving his whole self, the light and the dark, the good and the bad, until I love my own whole self, the light and the dark, the good and the bad. And so for my children, I have to go back and heal that part of me that was afraid to admit that I had ugly feelings or that I had made a mistake. And so that's my, my current thing I'm really working on, on healing. And I realize, you know, we think we're teaching our children, but as you know, it's completely the other way around because there is not a being on earth that could have pulled that realization out of me other yeah. than my son and it was really really powerful and and so I I work on it every day it's a beautiful concept I want I wish I could have been a fly on the wall to hear what you actually said in the end was it something like that I just told him the truth I just told him I see in you what I see in me and this is what I was afraid of. This is what I had put away in a deep, dark hole. And I actually wrote a poem, which I, I'm, I don't write poetry. I don't really write. And it just flowed out of me. And I read it to him. And his reaction was, you were a liar. <laughs> oh. You know, it was like, he couldn't imagine right. that, that the mother figure right. had the same fears and pain and struggles that he has. And we're very, we're very close and we speak very honestly. And I, I debated whether I should really share it with him. And then I thought, you know, it's the truth. And I'm trying to tell him that all you can do is speak the truth. So I think I have to tell him the truth. In the end, that's all we ever want. Yeah. To teach them anyway. Yeah. Beautiful. That was extremely helpful I'm sure for many I have a second question which is what is your favorite view hmm. I'm an aspiring surfer mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not very good but I'm incredibly passionate you must look so beautiful on the surfboard <laughs> oh god I, I don't know if I do I might look <sighs> awkward and and uh crazy on a surfboard but that's possible go on but but when I sit on the board and I look out on the water you know people are looking for that moment of flow and for me that's where I find it with the least amount of effort mm. I spend so much of my time trying to to find that and I think I try too hard <laughs> you know because <laughs> I can't help it I just I want it so much totally. but I sit on that board and I watch the ocean and there's something about that ocean that just is and there's nothing you can change about it you just have to adapt and flow and um, watch it and you can't fix it you can't change it and 
I think that's what I love about surfing. You just have to fit yourself into what already is. And then when you fall off your board, you just have to surrender to it. So that place of surrender in the ocean feels so good because it's such a release from all the other moments of my life where I feel like I have to grip and and fix and make everything work. Um, There's nothing I can do to make it work out there. And I just love love being out there oh and and the smell of my children I know it's not a view but no that's a good there, there's something to that, oh. the back of the neck oh my gosh yeah there's nothing better yeah I get that <laughs> and then the third question what does prayer mean to you it's interesting I've been thinking a lot about my relationship with religion yeah and I was raised sort of Christian-ish and What I mean by that is, you know, we went to the church where my mom liked the priest the best, but it wasn't one denomination and it wasn't strict. So I have that sort of tradition in my life. And I always remember thinking as a kid, I just don't get it. Hmm. I don't understand it. I don't understand the words and what does it mean? And when I ask questions, I don't understand the answers either. And so, you know, now much later in life, I look at religions and the words and I can see where they relate to source or universe or you know what whatever you want to call it that it's all a description of the experience of the same thing and I've now become much more attuned to that language and I can understand it but I never really understood it and so I never thought that religion or prayer was a part of my life or could be a part of my life and so when I think about prayer as a connection to source Mm -hmm. I feel like I aspire for every moment to be my prayer you know Mm -hmm. every moment is my connection to source and so my prayer is is the way I'm trying you know to live my life and it does change how you feel about the life that you live and it does feel like things are more meaningful and so that's how I think about prayer and that every moment is an aspiration to 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 live it in a way that's more connected than before Um, and so many moments aren't like that Mm -hmm. you know so many so many moments are just you know packing the lunch and you know but uh, but that doesn't change the fact that sometimes I feel that connection. Yeah. You know? I feel that from you almost every time I'm with you. It's funny. What are your, do you have any regular daily practices at all? I, I meditate every day, mm-hmm. um, at least twice, 20 minutes, but sometimes more. Um, TM? I can find the night. I do do TM. Mm-hmm. I do other meditation practices also. I don't really have a set routine. I um, am lucky that I have the flexibility to not have that. And so I really practice more trying to feel what I need rather than having a strict routine. And I found that it's really helped my creative process. Yeah, Uh, I was very sort of task oriented and I still am. I can still get a lot done in a short amount of time. Yes, you do. But at the, but at the right time, you know, it's like, I I sort of wake up and I say, okay, this is task moment. You know, I'm, I'm on a roll. My, my husband says she's in a zone. Don't interrupt her. And I can, you know, crank through emails and mail and do all the things that I need to do, you know, get through my list. And then I have those moments where my brain just can't do it. Mm. And I'm in sort of rest think contemplate mode and so it's a little bit you never know (laughs) what's going to happen every given day but but the meditation I do think first thing in the morning sets me up for that for the day yeah I think that's probably what I'm feeling on you it's very consistent your energy and uh, only two more questions the big explosion that you referenced earlier was it one thing one moment or was it over the course of time what what exactly happened yeah i mean i basically i guess it sort of happened all at once where i just decided i'm done (laughs) i'm done i can't i just can't anymore i'm completely numb i've given all that i can give and i'm just done 
I don't want it anymore. And it was really tough because I could see myself being hurtful to my husband and mm. I felt nothing. I was so completely numb. I've been there, yeah. So completely numb. And one of the things that I started to do was I started to become, this is when I started surfing. Because mm. I felt so numb that I needed something to make me feel alive. And, you know, I can see other more self-destructive behaviors coming out of wanting to feel alive from a place of total numbness. And I chose extreme sports, so I, I still like extreme sports. And surfing really, really helped me because, you know, when you get smashed off of a board and you're pummeled and you can't breathe and you feel like you're going to die and then you come up for that breath of air, you feel like, oh, I'm alive. Mm. And, and I was looking for that. I was craving that. So, yeah, it sort of happened all at once. It just sort of, you know, I think it had been a long time coming, but I was just holding it in, holding it in, holding it in. And then at one point I just... I just couldn't anymore. Yeah. And other extreme sports are? <laughs> They're not that extreme. I mean, I, I like to rock climb. And one of the things that we do at Nushu is, is simply because I love to do it. And I think, it's, I think it's great to get out of your comfort zone. And it's very bonding. So recently we did the flying trapeze on the west side. That's the best. And we did a, a daybreaker yeah. Morning dance party. Yes. And we're going on a surf trip. And yes. I want to skydive and I've done it before and it was the best thing I've ever done. And my husband said, I draw the line at skydiving. He said, That's you it. know, I just, I don't want to have that conversation with our children that, <sighs> you know, and I said, fair enough. Okay. That's right. fine. So, so for me, it's about, um, high fear, low risk. So, so one of the things I think is really powerful is immersing yourself in very cold water. It's something I, I really enjoy We've been doing. having this conversation with several of my teammates. I have a yeah. dear friend in Norway who does it every morning in yeah. the ocean. It's incredible because I think that there's something about the physical body that's such an incredible metaphor. And when you experience it in your physical body, even though it's terrifying, it's less terrifying than experiencing it on an emotional level. So when you walk into the water, everything in your body is telling you, get out, get out, you're going to die, right? Because your body is conditioned to know that when it hits, you know, 34 degree water, it should get out as quickly as possible. But you know, in your mind, you're not going to die because you're uh -huh. going in for two minutes and then uh -huh. you're coming back out into a, you know, heated car. And so it's about saying, my body is screaming, I'm going to die, but it's just physical sensation. And so it's not about the fear, it's about the physical sensation. So it hurts and your skin prickles and it feels, you know, it, it hurts, but not to the point where you're going to die. And right. it's about saying to yourself, I can tolerate this discomfort and be okay. So to do that in your physical body is, is hard, but it's amazing how many people have convinced to do things physically that they didn't want to do. That's another, that's a talent I have to, I to get people it. to do things they don't think they want to do. And, and then there is a, there is a sort of metaphor for sitting in discomfort yeah. with feelings that is harder to access and convince people to do, but it's, once you've done it in your body, you can sort of say, I understand how that might work, how everything in me might be screaming not to sit in this discomfort. But if I sit in this discomfort, knowing that I'm going to be okay, I will pass through it. I've had several conversations like that in the past few days mm. where I feel like I'm sitting in a freezing cold ocean, <laughs> deeply uncomfortable, yeah. and I'm still sitting here, yeah. still breathing, yes. still just being here. Yes. I love that idea for, for any sort of uncomfortable moment to be able to just be present, breathe through it. It will pass like everything else does. Yep. Parents still alive? Yes. Both? Both my parents are still alive. My dad's had a slew of health issues, which have been really challenging for him primarily, mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. my mother, mm -hmm. certainly as a caregiver. And... Um, but it's been a really extraordinary experience for me to watch him handle so much with so much grace. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. He's extraordinary, and, and so is my mom. 
She's so beautiful. I saw the picture that you posted yeah. on Mother's Day. What yeah, a beauty. She is. Wow. All right. Well, this is going to be continued because I have a feeling there are going to be things that come up over the next few years that I want to share with folks. But I want to thank you so much for your honesty, for a lot of wisdom for the parents here. And for me, just the inspiration to follow your heart and to serve. Seth Godin teaches this. How can I not focus on serving as many people as possible and just delight the smallest viable audience? And I think you've done such a beautiful job of that. And may the work that you've done and the things that you share ripple out through all of the children of these women that you've served and many, many more to come. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, AG1, for sponsoring the Practice You podcast. My listener, you've been hearing me talk about AG1 for some time. I think I've been taking it daily for almost three years. 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens in one scoop in the morning. The best way to start your day supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and longevity, the conversation of the moment. The taste is delicious. It's suitable whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free. It contains less than one gram of sugar. No nonsense in here at all. It's a multivitamin that your body will actually absorb. If you are wanting to make an investment in your health and longevity, AG1 costs you less than $3 a day, far less expensive, and definitely less time-consuming than many different supplements. Reclaim your health, arm your immune system with convenient, delicious daily nutrition. And since you listen to the Practice You podcast, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of immune-boosting vitamin D and 5 free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Elena. Once again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash E-L-E-N-A. Take ownership of your health, my listener. And thank you, Athletic Greens and AG1.